The scripture reading this morning is taken from Romans, the first chapter, beginning with verse 18 and reading through verse 27. And that is on page 999 in the Pew Bibles. And I'll be reading from the New American Standard. This is Paul's letter to the Romans that he's writing at this time. We start in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creatures rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, For their women exchanged the natural functions for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural functions of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us again, we welcome you. We thank you for being here. Your presence encourages us, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. I want to encourage all of us to be mindful of this coming Sunday. will be our family day. There are postcards in the back. Uh, maybe a few of those left. If you want to pick those up to mail to family or to friends to come and be a part of family day, uh, we look forward to that. It's a way to enrich our lives and also a tremendous way to encourage visitors to think about the important relationships in life, not only a relationship with God, but also our relationships with our families. And so let's make sure that we do everything that we can do 
uh, to esteem God's design of the family. And we'll talk about that this morning in our sermon. Also keep in mind, not this Tuesday, but the next Tuesday, we will have a pre-poll prayer here at 6 a.m. in the morning. I want to encourage you to be here if you can at all possible. And we'll spend 15 or 20 minutes in prayer. And we'll pray about especially uh, the Amendment 1 that will be voted on that day as we will try to esteem God's standard of the family, God's design of the family by the way we vote, but also uh, all the concerns of that day as we consider the, the progress of our nation throughout this election. Also, want to encourage you uh, to go ahead and be picking up today their yellow re- prayer request sheets. If you've been here for a few years at Mount Juliet, you're well aware of our tradition to close out the year with an emphasis of 50 days of prayer. We want everyone to pray all year long, all the time, pray without ceasing. But this is a time period that for seven weeks... We pray together, especially praying about concerns in each other's lives and in the life of this church. And so if you'll be picking up those forms, there'll be a box for you to submit those in this evening. And we'll be creating prayer cards that you'll have the opportunity to pick up a prayer card each week. And uh, together we will pray about hundreds of thousands of things as each of us will pray those cards three times a day. Uh, Ten things will be included on those cards. Every name will be included on the cards. Every ministry, every concern in our congregation, and every prayer request that you bring uh, to our attention. And so be sure and be mindful that those are ready to be picked up today. And over the next couple of weeks, uh, please try to be getting those in so that we can be making out those prayer cards. Also, we we miss our youth uh, this morning. You probably noticed we have about a hundred that are away. On, it's a little bit more than a hundred that are away on a fall retreat. Uh, we're thankful that we're hearing great reports of that retreat, and we pray for their safe uh, return home this afternoon. Also, uh, we are thankful that Paul Dobbins was baptized Thursday evening. Paul's sitting right here. If you want to wave or stand up, all right, he's where everyone can see him. And uh, we are thankful that he was baptized Thursday evening. His wife Michelle was restored. She grew up in the church and. Uh, she was visiting earlier this year. She was uh, visiting with Stephanie Gasly at Mount Juliet Elementary School. And Stephanie encouraged her to just visit with us. And uh, I think Stephanie's exact words were, give us a try once. If you don't like it, you don't have to come back. And, uh, and so they, they visited once and they liked it. And they've been coming back and they've been with us for a lot of this year. And, and they've been studying with Mitch Poscovich on Wednesday nights. And we are so thankful uh, for their commitment that they are making to the Lord, and it encourages us, and we hope that we can encourage them. Does it really matter about homosexuality? I mean, if someone wants to be a homosexual, should that affect us? Should we have any desire to protect marriage? Should we say that it's a righteous stand if we stand against redefining marriage? You know, this is something that, that has been a very... Uh, difficult topic for many. There are many faithful Christians that don't honestly know exactly how strong to stand. This is something that crosses party lines. This is something that crosses uh, genders and age and etc. This is something that we could say there's a lot of people that are equally confused on this. I want to give you this simply by way of introduction to remind us just exactly how the thinking is and how it's confused and how People simply don't know how to stand, or if they do, oftentimes where they stand is really wrong. You remember back at a presidential debate, and this debate was between uh, President Bush and between Senator John Kerry. And the moderator asked this question, homosexuality, is it a choice? 
George Bush answered, I don't know. Senator John Kerry said, we're all God's children. And I think if you talk to Dick Cheney's daughter, who is a lesbian, she would tell you that she's being who she was. She's being who she was born as. I think if you talk to anybody, it's not a choice. The reason it's important, if homosexuality is important, is because most people would not want to deny to homosexuals any civil rights, including marriage, if they are created by God, be homosexual, or if in any secular parlance they are born that way. Friends, are those two answers safe? Is it fine for you and I to say, you know... I really don't know if God created individuals to be homosexuals. Is that fine? Is that, is that kind of ignorance acceptable? Or is it acceptable to say, well, certainly God created them that way. Well, you don't find anyone that's that way by choice. They'll tell you they're born that way. So therefore, if they say they were, it must be a fact. This morning, I'd like for us to look at some of this. But I'd like for us first to drop back and look at a much broader picture that would help us understand, first, God's righteous design of marriage. We're going to make it back to this great text that we've had so capably read for us in just a few minutes. But first, if you would, go with me to Genesis, the second chapter. As you're turning to Genesis, the second chapter, I would like, by way of introduction, to remind you of the importance of the family Do you realize that there's never been a great civilization that has ever survived without the strength of families? Families defined as a man and a woman committed to each other, to each other only. I'd like to read for you, and we have a screen with this on it, and we're not going to take the time to read all of this, but from some of the focus on the family resources... I was thinking about this very thing, and and I'd even written an introduction that I was going to use this morning. And then when I read this, I trashed it. I said, wow, they said it a lot better than what I could say it. Let's think about this. Theologically, marriage is the first human institution. It's thousands of years older than the church. Sociologically, marriage is the glue that holds together communities. Now, I'd like to preface that by saying first, it's the glue that holds together families, but also communities. It regulates sexuality. It civilizes the home. Marriage provides for the proper development of the next generation. Anthropologists tell us marriage, a permanent linking of men and women, is found in every civilized and uncivilized society throughout human history. Now, Professor Don Browning tells us of the University of Chicago that it has lost its favor in the past three decades. It's been on a decline because we see a dramatic increase in cohabitation, divorce, single parenting by choice. And we see that not only has it lost favor in America, but also that it is losing favor in Canada and New Zealand, Australia, many European countries and Central American countries. And this is one of the great things that we have to deal with on mission trips to Central America is trying to help individuals see the need that have been cohabitating for decades together, and they are monogamous in that relationship, trying to convince them that marriage is still an institution that they ought to be willing to be involved in, committed to, if in fact they want to be a Christian. 
Friends, as we look at all of these thoughts, there's so much to consider about all of this. And so this morning, what I'd like for us to do is is to kind of drop back from the picture of really is marriage necessary? And how does homosexuality affect that? And how does just a loss of favor where individuals say, I want an intimate relationship with the opposite sex, but I just don't want a commitment of marriage. I'd rather cohabitate for years or even decades. Does it really matter? You see, all of these, we could have each one as its own lesson. But let's drop back and let's look at some principles that you then can take and apply this to all that we're addressing this morning by way of introduction. By way of introduction, I'd like to show you two charts uh, from Rutgers. And if you want to look these up online, you can do a search for Rutgers. Each year, they do a very in-depth study on the state of unions in America. And so this is a 2006 report, and there's a lot of interesting statistics revealed, and etc. And if you'll notice that between the ages of adults, 35 through 44, who were married, if you drop down and see in 1960, almost 87 to 88, in other words, almost 9 out of 10 adults in that age bracket were married in 1960. Okay, you have that? Nine out of ten were married in 1960. But then this brings us to 2005, where it's only two out of three are married in 2005. In other words, if we lined up every adult in America today between this age bracket of 35 and 44, one out of every three would be single today. Why is that? Well, let's look at this next slide, and this kind of reveals part of it. It's not because individuals do not want an intimate relationship with someone else, including a physical intimate relationship. When we see cohabitating unmarried among the opposite sex, in 1960, there was about just a little over 400,000 that participated in this. But now when we see the 2005, we see that number has increased tenfold to almost... Five million. What does that tell us when we see that there are more and more individuals that are not married? And then, of course, now we understand there are more and more individuals that are still living a physical, intimate relationship, a sexual relationship with someone else. It's just not within the guidelines or the boundaries or properly, we should say, it's not by the design of God. And so this morning, you've already seen the title page as we think about who defines marriage. Is it acceptable for you and I as Christians to say, let's just have a vote across America and let's let Americans define marriage. If they want to include homosexuality, why does that bother us? Or is it safe to say, let's let politicians define marriage? Or is it safe to say, let's just let our natural behavior define marriage? If I want to do this, it has to be okay. Or... Do we have to respect the designer of marriage? Are we going to respect the creator of marriage? Are we going to listen to the creatures that have just participated in marriage? And so as we think about this, naturally we go to Genesis, the second chapter. Genesis, the second chapter is the great chapter. 
where we see not only creation, but we see an emphasis on mankind. We see in this chapter as it begins, Adam is already created. He's given the job to name all the animals. And when he does so, he sees that each of the animals have a companion. But he realizes in loneliness now that he no longer, or that he does not have a companion. He's no longer satisfied with that. And so God places him into a deep sleep. We first, we see the first surgery. A rib is removed from his side. And in verse 23, it says, Adam said when he saw a woman that was presented to him. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now notice verse 24. This is the pattern of marriage. And this is the most important point that we can study this morning to address any of the concerns that we've already mentioned or any concerns that you and I can dream of as we sit and discuss the events that are happening in our culture today. This pattern of marriage was given in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now notice, this is recorded here not specifically of Adam, because he didn't have a mother and father to leave. This is placed here by inspiration of God in the very beginning to say, I made Adam and Eve for each other, not only that they would just share in the human race, but I made them so that they would share in marriage. I made for Adam a help meet, one that is not exactly like him, but one that complements him. Now, in this, we see that one of the great dangers of homosexuality is that the argument for homosexual marriages takes away the very concept of gender differences that God created. When someone tries to make an argument and say two men or two women can raise a child just as well as a mother and a father can raise a child, what that's doing is that's taking Genesis 2 and it's wadding it up and it's throwing it away and it's saying God wasn't right. We don't need a mother and a father as children because there's no difference in gender. All that's important, according to that argument would be, is that there's two of us. Now, any of us that grew up in in a Christian home with a godly father and a godly mother, we can see the gender differences and we can greatly appreciate what a mother brings into a family and what a father brings into the family. And when we have experienced that, it is obvious that two of the same gender cannot duplicate that. But even if we haven't seen that in our own eyes, by our own life, we must believe it if we are to be Christians. Because God has revealed it in His pages. It's a part of the divine writ where God says, I'm not making another Adam. I'm making a help meet. Someone that will complement Him. And so with this, we see that this passage becomes the answer to many of the cultural concerns. Look with me, if you will, to Malachi, the second chapter. In Malachi, the second chapter, we read a powerful reading uh, beginning really back up in at least verse 10. And as we look at this, we see that, that they have really dealt terribly in their marriages and they put away the wife of their youth and, and they're marrying ungodly women. And so we bring all of this down. What's the answer going to be? In other words, is Malachi going to lick his finger and hold it up and say, which way is the cultural wind blowing? If he did, he would have said, hey, Divorce is fine. Marriage is not sacred. Go out and, and choose whatever partner you would like to choose. But notice he didn't do that. In verse 15 he said, but did he not make them one? Now what's he talking about? 
He's going back to Genesis 2 and he's saying, didn't he make one Adam and one Eve for each other? Now, he gives a statement that's really hard to understand exactly what he means. The scholars, they are baffled at this even. He says, having a remnant of the Spirit. In other words, is he saying there, he had the power as the Spirit of God, he had the power to create and to organize or design marriage in any way that he wanted. But notice this, the answer to this, and why one? Why did he create one man for one woman and want that to be a monogamous, committed relationship for life? Well, he gives the answer here. He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit. Let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Friends, I don't have time to develop any of the points we're covering this morning in depth, but I wish I had time to develop this one. There is something horribly wrong with a Christian that one side of his mouth will just blast the idea of homosexual marriages, and then out of the other side of his mouth, he'll say, well, divorce is just kind of a part of our culture. We really can't do anything about it. Both destroy God's plan of marriage. Both destroy the favor of marriage in a society. In other words, one is like that creek that just over time erodes the strength of an institution. And the other, in other words, if we voted in America tomorrow to accept homosexuality, uh, homosexual marriages, that would be like, like a, a blast that would just really uh, decay, if you will, the, the land. But both happens over time. And that's what Malachi is addressing here. He's saying, you're dealing treacherously, is the words that he uses here. And he's talking about divorce. As a matter of fact, in 16 he says, For the Lord God of Israel says, He hates divorce, for it's, it covers one's garments with violence. And so he's calling divorce something God hates, and he's calling it violence. Now, with this in mind, go to Matthew, the 19th chapter. By the way, when we read in Genesis 2, we were reading... In the patriarchal age, when we were reading in, in Malachi, we were reading in the Mosaic age. Now we're going to read again in the Mosaic age. In just a moment, we're going to read from the Christian age. But here in Matthew, the 19th chapter, they come to Jesus and they ask Jesus a question about, can we divorce for just any reason? And that's at the end of verse 3. That sounds like what would be a question that would kind of reflect our society today. Uh, can't we have no-fault divorce? Can't we just divorce for any reason? Can't we make this easy? We're, we're wanting to move on to other uh, lifestyles. We're wanting to move to other partners. We're just tired of this commitment. And so the answer that Jesus gave was not, let me see which way the cultural winds are blowing. The answer goes back, as you know, back to Genesis 2 again. And he says in verse 4, And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male, see the singular, and female? And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now he goes ahead and he adds this in verse 6. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God hath joined together, let not man separate. You see... They're asking questions about how they can do it today. And Jesus answers it by saying, Have you not read that document that is several thousand years old? You know, that one of Genesis 2. Don't you remember how God designed it in the beginning? In other words, Jesus' answer was not, Let's let the creature design it. Jesus' answer is, Let's let the Creator that has already designed it be the master of our life and let's submit to Him. 
Now, in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, we have a powerful reading as it elevates, if you will. And I'm not saying it wasn't up to this point. I'm simply saying in our understanding, it elevates the beauty of marriage between a husband and a wife to that of Christ and the church. And Ephesians 5 really gives us some powerful perspectives on how important marriage really is. It's like the love that Christ has for the church. Friends, I don't know of any greater way that that Christ could say in His covenant, the New Testament, this is how important it is for husbands to love their wives and wives to love their husbands and and for us to submit to one another and and for husbands to be the head and and wives to submit and, and build a strong and a lasting relationship based upon God's design. Now, with this in mind, look with me, if you will, as we read verse 30, 31 and 32. He says in 30, For we are members of His body and His flesh and His bones. Do you see what what Jesus is doing here in His new covenant? Paul writing here. Do you remember when Eve was marched up to Adam? You know, the rib had been taken out and marked up. And remember, he had been naming all the other creatures. So maybe it was a force of habit. Uh, He'd been naming the others. So he turns around and he says, Whoa, you're bone of my bones and flesh my flesh. You should be called woman. What is Jesus saying here in His covenant? He's saying, you want to talk about the church? Let me tell you who the church is. Jesus says, the church is my body. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. You see, Jesus is putting the two in that sense by analogy on a a level plane. It's, It's a parallel there. It's something that we can understand how important it is that we belong to each other. Now, it's in that setting that we have 31, which is again the pattern of marriage. For this reason shall man leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In 32, he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And then he says in 33, nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, when we see this, we see the great teachings now to understand how important the body of Christ is to be the bride of Christ. We're to be his flesh. We're to be his bones. We're to be his body just as in the sense that a wife belongs also to her husband. And so we see the importance of both. Now, we see clearly that every time it was taught about or questioned, it was always go back and see that there was one man and one woman. Go back and see that they were committed in marriage, not just cohabitating. They became husband and wife. You see, the point is this. There is no way that we can esteem another way and esteem the way of God at the same time. Let's go back and see how important this is in our text in Romans, the first chapter. In Romans, the first chapter, we had read for us, and if you'll scan these verses with me, we've already had them read. You see in 21, 22, and 23, we see the movement away from God. They knew God, but notice this. They did not glorify God. What does that mean to not glorify God? It doesn't, they didn't give God His dignity. They didn't give Him His praise. They didn't give Him His worth. How do we do that? When we stop living for God, we stop glorifying God. It's impossible for someone to live against God but then verbally glorify God. 
That's hypocritical. That's not glorifying God. And so here were individuals, they knew the way of God, but they stopped living the way of God. So naturally, they weren't thankful. And then when we take God out of our life, out of our heart, out of our mind, we become futile. In other words, morally depraved. We see someone, we see someone rape someone. And, and we say, wow, how could someone do that? That's sickening. They're morally depraved. How did they get to that point? They stopped glorifying God in their life. Or maybe it's someone that never glorified God. Friends, we don't do immoral things because we glorify God with our life. And so that's what Paul is, he's, he's showing us a spiral down that is eventually going to lead to two things in this particular text. It's going to lead to idolatry, and it's going to lead to homosexuality. And so notice their, their thoughts were futile, their foolish hearts became dark. They thought they were wise, but they became fools. And here's the point, number one, they changed the glory of the incorruptible God. Now notice when they changed God, they couldn't change Him into something greater. That's foolish to think that man could change God into something greater. The only thing that we can do, and notice we don't literally change God, we change the image of God that we worship. And so when we change the image of God that we worship, we bring Him down to a lower level. We make Him like us. Or, if we want to feel dominant, we make Him a little bit lower than us. Hey, let's make Him like an animal. Oh, not, not a beautiful bird that, that just soars through the sky. Let's make him more like a four-footed animal. Oh, no, no, I have a better idea. Let's really be dominant here. Let's make him like some kind of little creeping animal. You see, the idea is just keep bringing God down and down and down because then we can feel real good about our religion when we can dominate God. Now, so they changed God. What did that do? That caused also a change in exchanging the truth. Look at verse 24. Notice that change caused them, uh, to, God gave them up to uncleanliness. Notice this. In the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies. Now think about honoring God, glorifying God, or dishonoring God, or dishonoring our own bodies. You see, fornication is a dishonor to the body. Adultery is a dishonor to the body. Homosexuality is a dishonor to the body. What we're going to see, and I've got to just jump ahead and tell you this because we've got to start wrapping this up. But what you're going to see here in this text, we've seen that number one, they changed the glory of God. Number two, they're changing the truth. They're exchanging the truth of God. And then what's going to happen is they change or exchange the very way they use their bodies to suffer consequences that are horrible in return. And so notice how this happens. See in verse 25, and and I'm not, you know, just pulling out these. This is right here. The word change or exchanged is the frequent word where Paul is wanting to see. I want you to see what you're swapping out. You want to change the glory of God? You're going to start worshiping beasts and things like that. And then in 25, who exchanged the truth of God? Well, if you exchange the truth of God, what are you going to get in return? Okay, you and I are living the truth of God. Okay, I want to stop living the truth of God. Okay, I've got to give away the truth and I have to receive a lie. That's the only thing I can receive in exchange for the truth. And so we, we receive a lie. And notice what's going to happen when we receive the lie. We're going to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. That's where the title of the lesson comes from this morning. Are we going to worship and serve the creature or the creator? How we define marriage. Remember the question at the beginning? What does it really matter? Can I just say to my neighbors if they want to be homosexual, that's fine for you to marry. I wouldn't choose it, but that's fine. 
No, I can't choose that. Because when I've done that, and if you have your Bible open, drop down to the bottom of 32. He's telling that the ones that do these sins are worthy of death. And then at the end of 32, that not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. In other words, we're worthy of death if we're not willing to stand with God. If we're willing to exchange the truth, even in the lives of others, we're worthy of death just as if we committed the sin. Now, notice this exchange. This is powerful, and I really think that a lot of us have have probably never stopped and thought about this. Look with me, if you will, to 26 and 27, and we're going to see now the exchange of the natural use. 26 and 27, for this reason, God gave them up. And by the way, three times you're seeing it saying, God gave them up. Or God gave them over. And so God gave them up to vile passions. And and the idea of vile passion is shameful passions. And so their desire for homosexuality was shameful. Doesn't matter if everybody agreed with it. In God's sight, it's still shameful. And he says, for even their women, here the word is again, exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Now notice here, the natural use is talking about the physical anatomy. In other words... You just look at a male and a female, and it's obvious that God did not create their physical bodies for each other. So Paul begins by first saying, they're exchanging what is obvious. They're, 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 change, they're exchanging that. They're cashing it in. And what they're getting in return is not at all what God designed. And then notice it was the natural use for which is against nature. The idea of nature here is production. We usually call it reproduction. And so obviously... Two women will never produce. Two men will never produce. Everybody in the world becomes a homosexual tomorrow. Nine months from now, all of you that work in hospitals and the delivery areas and etc., you're not needed anymore. They're, they're closing down. They're not there because just a few generations from now, there won't be a world anymore. Our houses will have no value because there's going to be a lot of vacant homes. We're not going to be able to supply jobs. We're not going to be able to keep health care. Why? Homosexuality destroys civilizations. And so he's showing here, they don't reproduce. They don't build. Instead, it tears down. Now notice this, what we're exchanging for. In 27, he gives the same example for the men, but notice this closing. They were committing what is shameful, that goes back to vile passions, but notice this closing, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And so we say, now wait a minute, they received a penalty of error? What does that mean? You know how three times, and the next slide will show three times how God said, God gave them up, or God gave them up, or God gave them over. And that really is something we have to work through. What does he mean by that? It's not that God helped them or even urged them by any sort to commit the sin of homosexuality. But it's also a little stronger than God just saying, oh, you can do it if you want to. What's the point? We see in this passage that what God is saying is not only if you choose that path, will it be wrong, but I will make sure that the sin itself will become a part of the punishment. Go back and digest this this week. Don't just take my word for it. Look at it and see how God is promising. You do this and you will have to pay the penalty as you do it. Is that what we want for any family? Is to say, sure. Go right ahead. 
Let your family pay the penalty right now. Yes, that's what we want for the state of Tennessee. We want all kinds of individuals that are just paying the penalty for their sin right now. How's it do it? We've already pointed out. It's detrimental to the glory of God. It's detrimental to the truth. And it's detrimental to our own bodies. Notice he said we dishonor our own bodies. The next two slides we only mention quickly. You see there in 1 Corinthians 6, why do we flee sexual immorality? Because it's a sin against our own body. Look down at the end of verse 20. What we should be doing with our body is glorifying God with our body. So what is, what is it that we do in 1 Corinthians 7? We have our own husband. We have our own wife. Why? Because we want to avoid bringing dishonor to God and dishonor to our own bodies. Friends, someone that is practicing fornication. They say, well, I, I haven't done anything against marriage. Note this. We have if we're practicing fornication. Maybe neither one has ever been married, but they are speaking against marriage when they practice fornication because they're dishonoring the very relationship that God, the Creator, the Designer, created for us to enjoy only within those boundaries. Look at the next slide. Hebrews, the 13th chapter, he speaks about marriage is honorable among all. In other words, it's the idea that we honor God. We honor our bodies. We honor our neighbors. We honor our fellow members of the church when we live by the design of God. But what happens? If we choose not to do that, God will make sure. He says, I'll handle it. I'll make sure that the punishment's cast out. Friends, as we think about Amendment 1, we have a wonderful opportunity to speak a good word for God. It's that simple. God's designed it, and we have to decide. Am I going to glorify God? Am I going to hold to the truth and not exchange it? And am I, by the way I live, am I going to bring honor to my body? This morning, let's make sure that we realize that we have so much at stake. We have our soul at stake. And we have future generations at stake. Ask God again from Malachi 2, how do we raise godly children? He says, put them in godly homes. Let's make sure that we're doing the right thing for ourselves and for the generations to come. If you've never been baptized into Christ, or if you have and you need to be restored...